Hello and welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. I am Mike Overstreet and I'm joined today by my friend uh, John Devine. We are going to be covering John Wick today. Uh, so spoiler alert, if you haven't seen John Wick, we are going to be laying out a number of plot twists and things like that. So make sure you watch it before finishing this episode. So John, what is John Wick about? Thank you, Mike, and thank all you guys for listening today. You know, a pet's life is a, a precious and beautiful thing, and yet thousands of animals are abused daily. The power to end animal cruelty rests with you and with me and with John Wick. Together, the ASPCA and John Wick are dedicated to the prevention of cruelty towards animals, our adoption programs, one-man crime syndicate murder sprees, and legislative initiatives are already stopping animal abusers all over the country. So pick up the phone, call a local shelter, and try not to steal a lonely hitman's car and kill his adorable puppy. Be an angel to an animal today. <laughs> I had to cover my mouth that entire time. Oh Beautiful. my god. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. Oh my oh. goodness. Oh, uh welcome to this film could be your life. <laughs> Hey guys, once again, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Like Mike said, today we're going to be talking about John Wick. John Wick was a 2014 uh, complete breakout hit on a $20 million budget. It made $86 million. This was a out of nowhere uh, sort of, I'm going to say revitalization of uh, Keanu Reeves' career. It was kind of a return to form for action movies in general i think uh i'm i don't think i saw this movie in theaters i think it i think i saw it probably just on uh, home at some point a few the year it came out and i think like most people instantly fell in love with it probably when i heard the premise to be honest with you uh mike what's your relationship to this movie yeah it's actually the complete opposite Um, I remember when this trailer came out and, you know, Keanu Reeves was at the end of his rope for me. He had just done things like the lake house and, you know, some movies that I did not find particularly interesting. And this trailer looked terrible. I mean, this movie to me, I actually don't remember this trailer. Oh man. I thought it looked so bad. It looked like an action movie that actors make when they just need a paycheck because their career is over. And, um, that line that's actually phenomenal in the film was like the center of the trailer, which is him saying, people keep saying I'm back. I'm oh, thinking yeah. I'm back. And it was just cut into the trailer with only that line. And it was so that's stupid sounding, right? It's like, yeah. I'm thinking yeah. I'm back. Um, so yeah, I was, I thought this was just kind of another bad Keanu movie in a string of bad Keanu movies. And then it came out 
And I still remember the first Rotten Tomatoes score coming out and just being like, this is sitting at 100% still. This yeah, is still like, sitting what? at like 100%. And as reviews kept in, it ended up at like 86 or something. And 87, buzz, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And the buzz just kept growing and it kept getting positive reviews. And then people I knew went and saw it and were like, this movie is amazing. And I eventually went and saw it. And, you know, that stunned disbelief that a movie with Keanu Reeves about um, a revenge thriller <laughs> over a dog. I did not think a that puppy could be good. Yeah. And man, I saw it in theaters. It blew me away. It was awesome. It was better than I could have imagined. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but it revitalized the action genre for me in a yeah. number of ways. So, yeah, yeah, that was my experience with it. I mean, I think this was a great example of a, a classic word of mouth movie, right? Because uh, you're right. It wasn't like it, it didn't have very much buzz going into it these days. That's very rare, right? If you think about big movies, they usually have, you know, $300 million marketing campaigns going into it. Uh, they have, you know, they're generating all this, all this buzz. They're getting midnight premieres. They're doing all this work to make you excited about it before it comes out. And this was a real sleeper hit. It was yeah. just came out of nowhere. And suddenly everyone, you know, is like, dude, have you seen John wick? And you're like, what, what are you talking about? And you go see it. And it was just amazing. Um, and they've kind of, I don't know how much we want to talk about the sequels. I think that they, it makes sense that they were able to keep building on that goodwill. I personally think that they kind of jumped the shark with the third one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, but the second one is great, but, but it makes sense to me that the strength of the first one was so immense that that word of mouth that they could kind of just keep going. And for all I know, they're just going to keep making these forever and probably people will keep going to them out. You know what? I didn't love the third one. I would still go see John wick four if it came out. Yeah, uh, tomorrow. And each one's blown away the previous one's box office. So it's, I yeah. mean, these films are making money, if nothing else. Perhaps the least expected or least possible to anticipate franchise like hit of yeah. any movie I can think of recently in terms of being like, oh, yeah, that's going to become a staple in our lives for the next 10 yeah. years. Like, I know who would have called that with John Wick? No one would have called it. I will say, oh, yeah. Uh, no one would have called it. I will say, in a sense, it doesn't surprise me um, because, and actually, you know what? I'm going to segue very gracefully into the first section that we're going to talk about is basically why does this movie work? What does this movie do that makes it a good movie that that functions well? And I think the thing I might have been able to call, or at least the way I might have known at the time that this was going to be a very kind of revitalizing movie for action films was that it was so not what American audiences were used to seeing in action movies suddenly. So in other words, the first point I have in terms of why this works is it has really good action. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. I for, It doesn't even have that many action scenes. Really? If you count it, it's probably like four or five. I think the action scenes, they, they hold their shots it's kinetic. It walks this line of being almost like a dance, like it's graceful action, yeah. but it has this gritty brutality to it. It's just so well made and well shot. Keanu kills it, obviously. He's so sold out to the performance. It looks like he's actually doing all of this stuff. I just think that at the moment, we had not only have we not seen action like that in a while, at least, 
I don't think we were we remembered that movies could do that. Yeah, a lot of American action had been very, for lack of a better word, watered down. Had been very soft, you know. And suddenly it was like, oh no, this movie is really going for it and is gonna put on a little bit of a show here. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. What do you think? That that's my first the the first and overwhelming reason why this movie works in my opinion is it's just a good action movie and it's an action movie that you weren't it's the kind of action you weren't expecting to see at the time it came out yeah absolutely i mean you know this has been brought up in other movie circles but you know i think every 10 years or so a movie comes around the action genre that kind of revitalizes it um oh yeah it really brings them back to the forefront and this movie does that and i think it's for the reasons that you said. I mean, the way it's shot, uh, especially the way I, I noticed that this time, the way the camera kind of moves across, side to side, like yeah, yeah. it moves with that. him in a pan in a really slow, deliberate way. And what the character in the middle really taking part in, like you said, a form of action that's far more like flow, dancing, uh, choreographed. It's very, um, it's very intensely beautiful in some ways yeah. and fluid. I think that's the way they kept coming. I was like, my goodness, he is such a fluid action actor in this movie. Yeah. Right. And the way it does that is something I know I had never seen in a film before. I mean, it was just a form of action on top of the sheer, I think you're right. Brutality of it, which, Oh my gosh, have there ever been this many headshots <laughs> in a movie? Right. It's, it's a shockingly violent movie. Um, but I think the grace of the movie, which is a really weird word to throw into this, thrown yeah, in the sheer style of it and the technical perfection of it is something that sets it above. And then I also definitely want to just sit with Keanu Reeves for a second because he's unbelievable we, in this can movie. Can we put a pin in Keanu Reeves for just a second? Yeah, yeah. So sticking with the action thing and specifically uh, what you're saying about this idea of every 10 years or so, I think you actually can really pinpoint a lot of what this movie does right in terms of the last movie that had revitalized the action genre, which this is sort of a reaction against, I would say is probably the born identity. Yeah. Um, Cause at the time action movies had become very, especially spy thrillers had become very over the top, very sensationalized. And then the born identity comes out and it's gritty. It's shaky cam. It's these, you know, it's not at all graceful, whatever the opposite of that word is. It is, you know, down in the dirt. You're just, it's really, really gritty. I think that what John Wick does as comparison to that, I mean, there's a practical side of this. Like we already said, it doesn't, it uses extremely long shots. So it lets these scenes, these action scenes play out in front of sure. you. You get to actually see him running around doing all this amazing looking stuff. And at the time in the industry, I think it was much more, again, shaky cam, fast cuts, think taken, think born identity, stuff like that. Um, and so a lot of why this works, yeah, is because it's so different than that style previously. And don't get me wrong, born identity is a great movie, but it gets back to what you're saying, right? That you have to have these, uh, these shakeups in that kind of industry every now and then, because we get kind of used to a certain style of filmmaking after sure. a while yeah yeah and it's and weird something it's, to shake it up there's something that i noticed this time which from a martial art perspective was really interesting which is that 
so much of his strength in this movie is very counter to things like Bond and even at times um, Born, where, you know, the, in a really weird, real way, they're like a force of nature, right? They impose themselves yeah. onto the people they're fighting. They are overmatched. They are coming after them. They are unstoppable, right? And so much of what makes Keanu's performance, but also just the action of John Wick so compelling is that he's his his fighting is always responsive in this movie yeah in which he is responding to the momentum of something coming at him right yeah there's a person coming at him full force there's a person coming at him like you know head on and everything he does is actually makes a lot more sense than most of those other movies in terms of like the physics of his combat where he's letting their weight draw them off balance where he's using their move to respond and then catch them in a trap right and it makes it all feel incredibly natural, mm-hmm. but also far less, I don't even know the word for it, but just far more, uh, I guess, graceful and fluid is the way to to say it. it, it there's a way in which he is just stylized. In the responding. It does feel like a dance. Yeah. Stylized. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It, it walks I, I, almost better than any other action movie I can think of. It walks that line, right, of stylization and grittiness and reality it's funny you just you started to hint at of something i have to catch myself doing with this movie when i watch it i start thinking wow this feels so real it's not real to be clear it's so deeply in it's it's a very unrealistic movie but i think that's the trick of it it's a very unrealistic kind of style that makes you believe that it's there's something realistic about it it kind of in that sense reminds me going way back to like batman begins that a lot of us walked out of that like wow that was a really realistic take on batman it's not yeah it's absurd in every way but the strength of the movie is that it can convince you that there's something kind of grounded in it even if there's not um yeah yeah, when they do that they do that a really good job or they do a really good job with that with john wick as well the character because I also caught this time yeah. that there's so much of him that is so totally un- inhuman and unrealistic in terms oh, yeah. of like the sheer force of him as a character and uh, the destruction and havoc he wreaks upon the world. But at the same time, like you see him do things like counting bullets. You see him take a fall and actually not get up. Or when he gets hit mm-hmm. by a car, he gets knocked out, right? Yeah. And yeah. they do these really small things that keep it grounded in a movie that is so ungrounded in everything else it does which in a really subtle way does make you feel like you're saying you're like oh this is very realistic and you're like yeah no it's not this is absurd you you think a little bit later you're like wait a second did one guy just kill like 80 hitmen the entire Uh, russian mob (laughs) yeah and, and, and somehow i convinced myself yeah that made sense there was no problems with this movie yeah uh absolutely but no, yeah, you're you're totally right. I think a lot of the devil is in the details in a lot of sense. Uh, and you're right, too, that that like when he gets hit, it looks like he gets hit when he yeah. Yeah. when he gets shot or he gets bleeding, you know, or anything like that. You buy it. He's not a superhero in, in the context of the film, even if when you in a meta sense, he is because he's obviously not going to lose or get killed. Um, but yeah, I think it, it just works so much on that and i will now dovetail this into what you brought up let's have the keanu conversation yeah my goodness because 
this is such I, I I almost think it's unfair to call this a revelation because I think he had been this level of action star for a really long time. But this was the movie that cemented the fact that he's probably one of the best action movie, if not the best action movie stars ever. If you just think about John Wick, I I hate to say it, John Wick, Point Break, and The Matrix. If you just think about those three and Speed, I forgot about Speed. Those four all-time classics, all-time great action movies, and... Just on that pedigree alone, I think, and that's over like twenty something years, right? Twenty five yeah, years or something yeah. like that. Uh, I, I always have appreciated. I'm gonna, I'm gonna straight scam something. I'm stealing from someone else. Um, I, I read this great piece that was talking about this movie, as a matter of fact, and they were talking about Keanu's acting because a lot of people like to be down on his acting. I, I think there's more than one way to be a good actor. Certainly he's not the Daniel Day Lewis. Oh my goodness. I believe that this is, you know, this other person suddenly is transformed on screen. I think what he does though, that's so underrated is you completely believe that he believes he is this character. Sure. Right. He is so, so sold out to the, he says deeply stupid lines uh, throughout most of these movies. Like, uh, you know, the, greatest example i think is almost everything he says in the matrix whoa that's a great example obviously in this movie people keep asking me if i'm back yeah i'm thinking i'm back it's a not it's not like shakespeare but he is selling the hell out of it and that's why it works that's why you are completely bought in and it's you're just having fun with it um there's a charisma there i don't know i can't say enough good things about keanu what you got well, yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, one of my favorite good, bad movies and people get upset when I call it bad is definitely like Point Break, um, yeah. which is just like to me the most absurd movie to revolutionize a genre ever made. Um, but we'll talk about that in a different yeah. podcast. For this one, <laughs> I think what has always had me kind of out on Keanu is, you know, in those movies, it's fine that he's not necessarily the greatest actor of all time um, sure you know like bill and ted but then he went through that stretch where he tried to make dramas he tried to make serious movies and yeah. he has a aloofness to him as an actor in a lot of movies mm-hmm. that quite frankly just kills him in most movies sure. i see him in where i'm just like this comes across as bad acting um and yet in this movie one he's a lot more sharp in this movie like intense there's a few yeah. scenes where he is actually just plain intimidating uh you know yeah. the you can either hand over your son or die screaming beside him line is delivered in a way that i'm like that actually scared me a little bit yeah it's terrifying so to me it, it's hard because there's there's a level of it where i'm like yeah this is good acting in this film for the most part but i also think that kind of characterizes a new phase in his career um, yeah, I think that this is not something that has previously like I never got that edge in a point break, even though it is a classic action film. He was definitely a superstar in the Hollywood mm-hmm. circles, but there's a different level in this movie that sets it apart. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know if I can even put my finger on it, but maybe it is that he is just all in on this character. But it, it's it's the strongest performance I can think of from him in a movie. Yeah. 
I, I could totally agree. I, I like what you said about he has an aloofness to him. He has a detachedness to him. I think the key of a movie like this is it takes what I'm not going to say are his weaknesses, but takes those aspects of his acting and kind of weaponizes them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I think it really uses that fact that he has a certain uh, detachedness. He has a certain, uh, you know, whatever the, that, that je ne sais quoi is, he has that, that separation about his acting and it makes it into this badass persona. Like it, it yeah. fuels the part of him. That's just like, Oh man, this guy is so intense. This is awesome. Um, it makes that into a character trait, I guess is what I'm saying. Absolutely. And it, it so works. Absolutely. I think it's strong. Uh, well, you know what? I actually have another point, you know, staying on this topic of why this movie works. And it's kind of related to that. The movie knows exactly how dumb it is, but it takes itself seriously. Yeah. And I yeah. think that that very much ties into how Keanu works in this movie too. Like, so the premise of this movie is certifiably insane. This guy has like, this is, I just can't overstate how, cause I think we've almost gotten used to it. We're like, Oh yeah, that's so silly. It's like, yeah, but really think about this. This whole movie rests on an ex hitman whose wife dies of some unknown disease that she, and, but she gifts him a puppy that gets murdered by the, by, the, by the Russian mob. So he goes on a killing spree and wipes out. That's the, the Russian stupidest mob. thing. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard my entire life. But the key is one, the movie knows it's stupid. It knows that it's having fun with this and B it's still going to take itself seriously. It's not necessarily going to wink at the audience because there's a version of this. I think that wouldn't have worked, which is if it was being a little bit, if it was being kind of jokey with this, right? Yeah. If it was like, this is seriously over, you know, like, I don't know if, if it lampshaded the fact that the whole premise is absurd. Um, but again, there's, this is a movie of balances, I think. And, and one of those balances is it knows how stupid the premise is, but it's still going to take it seriously. So in a way, it's taking it seriously, but not too seriously. Uh, I think that's that's a huge part of why it works. Like I said, I was kind of sold on the premise because I, assuming that it nailed the tone, which it does, as soon as I heard the premise, I was like, okay, I'm in. That's all yeah. I needed. Well, and it's so funny because like I would say, uh, you know, the revenge film and, and you know even the subgenre of i was i was out but then i got pulled back in like those two genres yeah. are guilty pleasures for me i don't know why um and yet they're a genre that i actually think has grown very stale for me you know there's sure. a couple of really good versions that have come out in recent years like blue ruin but for the most part i'm kind of over the trope uh yeah. i still love classics but like i get it uh someone hurts you so you go on a killing spree like whatever mm -hmm. and yet this movie is actually does a very brilliant thing with something as absurd as killing a dog being at the the center of the plot which is uh -huh. i have for whatever reason that small tick of killing a puppy instead of a you know jerk human being who i don't really care about in these kind of films uh, which we'll get to his wife later. Like if they had killed his wife, for example, I would not have cared about this movie, but no, man, they killed Daisy when they kill that cute dog. Like that I have never supported a man's quest of <laughs> vengeance so much in my entire life when he's lying next to it and it's dead. That, and he like, yeah, bears it, I'm like, 
the whole Russian mob has to die. Everyone yeah, you're, has you're to completely die. on board. Yeah, it's uh, absurd. They Aren't did. Really I, I, <laughs> they did get the cutest yes, puppy I wrote that in, my notes. <laughs> in all of human history. It's unbelievable. The first time this thing comes on screen, you're like, I just want that. I don't even. I will do anything to have this puppy. And when it gets murdered, you're like, what? There's uh, it's actually uh, it's going to come up a little bit later in my essay. But just to just to preview a little bit. I don't know if you know this. Every study ever done of film audiences tells us that people hate watching dogs get killed more than literally anything else. I'm including children, families, anything people hate watching dogs get killed and normally that's used as a a red flag in other words like if you were to write today a movie in which a puppy gets killed and submit it to a major studio that will be one of the first things they're going (laughs) to ask they're going to tell you don't do that uh people hate this so much it's absurd and i'll be honest i have trouble watching that scene i'll literally kind of like like especially if i'm casually watching i'll just kind of fast forward a little bit um but again this movie knows what it's doing in a sense and is like yeah we're gonna do the most heinous thing you can sort of that you can do in a movie knowing that then we've just bought ourselves license to <laughs> let to have this character do um, whatever he wants yeah. to go genocide against russians that's what essentially happens. that's what happens i do want us to stray off this topic a little bit because i'm going to cover well, this exact thing in my essay later well, but I just want to stop real quick and just acknowledge yeah. that it is like that character, the Russian son mm-hmm. is set up with the most intentionally like, boy, I hope this person gets shot stuff. Yeah. Like when his car pulls up and he's just blasting like some bad rap song. Yeah. And then the entire like interaction with John wick is just like comically setting him up to be like the fall guy. <laughs> and then he hits a dog with a lead pipe and you're like, yeah, well, you sold it's, me. I don't want yeah. that guy to live well, anymore. <laughs> I don't care what happens to him from yeah. this point on. Um, it's the definition of no redeeming qualities. Yeah, there, the character has Even no his dad trait. Yeah, yo, his dad's great. Actually, his dad, this was another thing I have on why it works. The Russian boss who sells you on John Wick. The, yeah. the reason, and, and to get a little bit more specific, um, the reason this movie works, in my opinion, is the scene where the the Russian mob boss explains to his son who John Wick is. Yes, that scene again in a worse version of this movie. That scene just doesn't exist, like or or it's a little trade off. But you need that moment to basically buy into the fun of what this movie is going to be. And the movie takes its time, by the way. I forgot. It's, oh, yeah. There's a full 30 minutes before the first action scene. Yeah. And yeah. the first action scene comes right after that scene where the boss is, is telling his son who John Wick is. And that's so brilliant. It takes its time. It sets it up. It, it doesn't rush into things. And it makes sure that when you get into that first scene, you are rooting for John Wick in every possible way you can. First of all, because they killed his puppy. But second of all, because you just want to see whatever whatever uh, uh, otherworldly force this mob boss just described of, yeah. of that whole speech he goes on. I saw him kill three men with a pencil stuff. It's just amazing. It's some of the best world building I've ever seen in a movie. 
Yeah, I I actually noted that obviously too because I think it is the best scene in the film. But I wrote it as the myth of John Wilk or John Wick yeah. is what worked the best, and the way it builds. And then what I particularly liked is the way people respond to his name in that scene. The scene where the guy from the auto uh, shop tells the Russian why he hit his son, and he says he stole John Wick's car and killed his dog, and the dad just goes, "Oh." And then hangs up the yeah. phone. And then the scene All-time goes great scene. like where he he's opening up the weapon stash in his basement. And you see the entire conversation where he's like, he wasn't the boogeyman. He was the one sent to kill the boogeyman, which is really a great scene of exposition in a film. Oh my that, God. Yeah. Quite frankly, the scenes with exposition aren't always great, but this yeah. one was, it's super clean. It's fast. It's natural. It lays out the characters. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to him taking the shower and he has that giant back tat. Yeah, which you haven't seen before. Right? And then it just goes off in that first action scene, which is just like, as we've already talked about the action, it's just like for someone in my generation, you're like, what is this movie? And yeah, yeah, that entire thing is masterfully done. Even when Jimmy shows up at his house after and he's just like, you working, John? (laughs) He's like, yeah. Actually, I wrote down that moment as the other. In fact, so so let's just go ahead and slice out that it's probably ten or fifteen minutes from when he starts unearthing the weapons and the and while the mob boss is uh, the Russian boss is telling his son about John Wick through that action scene through Jimmy through the cleaners. Okay, so yeah. that fifteen minute window I think is about as good a fifteen minutes as any action movie has ever had. Yeah, I um, agree. partially because so we have the setup which is amazing. The action, which is amazing. And the key thing about Jimmy and then the cleaners is, and this is the other thing I wrote down about why this movie works, is that it opens up the world of John Oh my Wick. gosh, yeah. I put the movie's universe as one of the best parts of this movie by far. Yeah, I mean, I think that the whole movie, the thing I wrote down this time watching it, like I think the biggest turn of the movie is actually when the cop comes sees what's happening and says, you're working. See you later. Or, you know, uh, you have a, you take care of whatever he says, but it's the moment that you realize, okay, this is going to be a fun movie. Yeah. This is, this, this movie is, op- is like I said, opening up a whole universe of this, you know, weird assassin world or whatever it is. And in this universe, we're going to play by different rules. And one of those rules is we don't have to worry about little things like police. Yes. Or, uh, you know, or even like bodies, because then we have this cleaner who and they use this weird currency or whatever. Like it, it starts to set up like, okay, we're playing in a different with different, a different rule set. Yeah. And it's most it's just totally engineered to be fun. And it's great. Which, yeah, first of all, I'm just going to read. I actually typed out the dialogue between him and Jimmy. He says, yeah, go. Evening, John. Evening, Jimmy. Noise complaint? Noise complaint. You are working again? No, just sorting some stuff out. Oh, well, I'll leave you to it then. Good night, John. <laughs> Good night, Jimmy. <laughs> that is what such a, a hilarious great, scene. Great dialogue exchange. <laughs> right after the most violent shootout I've ever seen in my life. I yeah. mean, so good. And I just, but, I, I hate, to, I hate to harp on it. I just want to reiterate. I think why it works is when you see the cop lights, you yeah. have a predetermined notion of how this is going to play out. You're like, oh man, he's going to get into it with the cops. It's going to be this whole thing. Cause you're so used to the rules of action movie storytelling. And so it's such a reversal for suddenly, oh no, that's not the kind of movie you're watching. 
you don't have to worry about silly things like that. It's great. I just love it so much. Keep going. What were you saying? Absolutely. I was just going to say, yeah, the what's, what makes it so strong is that the universe is really, and you've already pretty much talked about this, but it's hinted at and slowly revealed in a way that doesn't overdo it. That makes it clear, yeah. like you're saying, what the rules of the game are um, that builds intrigue and builds excitement rather than just kind of taking you into a realm of the unbelievable, even at times. Yeah. Which, yeah and it's another way that the movie is unbelievable. It is unrealistic. And yet you feel like you are buying into its world at the same time. Yeah. Cause, and I think you're right. I think the guys who come to dispose of the bodies and there's all these little jobs in the world, whether it's the doctor or them that just like pop up that explain away small things or the coins, the rules of yeah. life for this world, how they're even enforced like when they kill uh, the female assassin at the end, the hotel itself is obviously an amazing addition, I think. And then even yeah. like the way that they talk where he's like, how's your laundry is the doctor. in?" there's these throwaway lines mm -hmm. that give you a hint that this is a deep expansive world with far different rules than our own. Like you kind of said, but it's also mm -hmm. one you want to know about, which is funny yeah. because I think as the series goes on and we don't have to spend too much time on this, um, the films actually do give us a lot of the depth of what this universe is. And I actually yeah. think that's a bad thing in the other films. Like what I like about this movie is that it hints at more depth, but doesn't give us the unnecessary exposition in which the balancing act of all of this, basically it's a house of cards of things that don't really make sense become obvious and falls apart. Right. I think yeah. in like the third movie where once you give me a lot of detail, I start poking holes. If you're just hinting at it, it actually works it, it, really well. I mean, it's the classic horror movie thing. It, it, it's the it's the Jaws problem, right? Yeah. When you don't see the shark, what you imagine is scarier than anything they could have created. And then you see the shark and you're like, oh, okay, that's what it is. Yeah. I think it's similar that like with this movie, it's hinting at these things and it just sets your imagination on fire. You're like, oh my goodness. Like this is, so, is there this kind of job? Is there this kind of job? How do they get around this? Like you're just eager for more. But then when they actually start showing you everything, when, when they really start diving into the mechanics of how this works and, and, and they don't, I don't think they're too bad. I think the third movie is when it gets just insane in a bad way, but you know, the second one's not, not as bad, but the more they dive into the world, ironically, I think the worse it, that the, the world building becomes the worse the lore becomes because it's not leaving all of this to imagination. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. The more they hint at this, the more excited I am at it. When they just tell you, you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Uh, it's so cool, but it's not, it's not exciting in the same way, you know? Yeah. Or it's bad. I mean, I think there's some parts of the third one, which again, I could say the third one. There's, I, I actually think like in, in some, yeah, I think the second one might be a better movie. Again, I don't know if we need to have that conversation now. It's less revolutionary, but I think it, it, in some ways, is just a more fun... It gets to do more because it has such a bigger budget. Uh, the third one is just ridiculous, in my opinion. It just It's so long. It's so crazy. It's so over the top. It jumps the shark. I was just so... I was kind of bored by the end of it. Uh, yeah, we don't have to talk about the third one too much, though. Well, that's actually... I actually think that's a great segue into what didn't work, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things that stood out to me the most and this is actually it's a good segue because it straddles both categories and that is i think the film's budget um didn't work in a way for this one sure 
And it worked in one way, which is it kept it lean, which is a really strong quality of this film. I think there were constraints actually help it a lot at times. And the third one shows you what happens when the budget balloons and you actually have the opposite of you. But I actually think the second film shows you that like this movie could have been better with a little more money. I mean, I think there is this level of this film with just a a few million more bucks where this movie is an all time classic action film, which I do think it already is. I just think that one of the things that doesn't work is you tell, you can tell in this film, whether it's some of the casting decisions or some of just some small details that it with just a little more money, I think this movie could have gone to the next level. Yeah. I, I actually totally agree. The first line under on my notes, it says, what holds it back? First line says budget. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think it's, and I think maybe I even sold this from you. It's possible. We talked about this before, but I think the three films represent a very nice little Goldilocks kind of uh, kind of balancing act, right? That you're right. I think the first one, um, the first one will always have the fact that it was kind of revolutionary going for it. And I think that, you know, so in that sense, it will always be sort of the best one. But in a vacuum, I do think the budget kind of holds it back. And the second one nails that balance where it's got yeah. enough money to just go just go ham with all of this stuff, but not so much money that they start. It's, it becomes laughable. And the third movie I think becomes laughable. It becomes like just, just a little too much, just a little too long, a little too many uh, characters, a little too, a, a few too many locations. I think in the third movie, when they go to the desert is when yeah. I kind of checked out, I was like, I don't know why we're here. I'm not interested. Think about and the first again, movie. That, the whole thing insane. takes place in probably like one square mile. Yeah. And that's a scene yeah, like ahead. the desert scene. If you know filmmaking, shooting in the desert and shooting in the ocean are incredibly expensive. So that's just like one of yeah. those scenes where you're just trying to use money that they have. And and it doesn't add to the film. I think you're right. I mean, this this film could have used an, a deeper dive into some of the underworld. Other set pieces that the second one really does invest in. And that could have taken it to another level, which all to say, I still think the leanness is better than the other extreme. Cause I do. Think I, I agree. In a lot of ways. It keeps this movie exposition free. It again, it keeps it tight. So they're hinting at things, not defining things. And it keeps it focused on what makes this movie great, which is the action sequences, just yeah. really quality, low budget, um, fluid, intense action pieces. So, yeah. Even though with that being said, and and in a sense, we're repeating ourselves, but just to reiterate, I did want one more great action scene. I think there's basically two. There is. No, that's not true. I'm sorry. There's house in the opening fight scene or two of my favorite action scenes of all time. Yes, I agree. And then beyond that, I think there's a couple. It still holds its own. I still like watching the whole movie. Um but I, I wanted one more big thing. That was the other thing I wrote down. What holds it back? And and to be honest, I, I think all three prop movies have a slight problem with this. It's a little bit of an anticlimax. Yeah. Do you, do you not think? I, I think that, and I don't know, like maybe if if I thought this movie was smarter, I would think that maybe that was on purpose. There's, a, there's an off chance that's on purpose. I suspect it's just because, again, they didn't have budget, but also they just... It's hard to make a, a really fulfilling climax for a movie like this. I, I, I By the end, I'm a little bit bored. I'm a little bit worn out. Um, the final fights aren't the best in the movie. And so you're kind of like, okay, the, the last 
a third of the movie, I would say gets a little long, a little boring. Um, the, the last deaths don't really do anything for me. I think the last action scene I'm really still on board with is when he's chasing them in the car and yeah. the charger. Yeah. Um, after that, I'm completely checked out. In fact, yeah. I don't think, I think on a casual watch, I don't even keep watching. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I really think, um, the ending scene with the mob boss is a huge letdown. And I actually, this ties into that, which is, you know, I think one, on one hand, it just could have used another good action sequence, but on top of that, it just could have used a more epic villain, I guess is the way to put it. Um, Which isn't to say that he's not a good villain in his speaking roles, but what the film lacks that again, I think the second one really hits is that there are no real boss battles in this movie. And that is totally agree villainous characters like common in the second one or the the character that's mute in which you have this really awesome build-up to an action sequence a one-on-one fight that is phenomenal right yeah and the third one predictably goes way overboard with that don't get me wrong <laughs> yeah but, like the final scene with him fighting the russian boss is like what the hell is this like why does yeah. he stab himself um he's obviously beating the dude badly toying with him yeah. even and then he chooses to take a knife in the gut and you're like, well, maybe he's trying to kill himself. But then he goes to the vet's office, which I don't know why he doesn't go back to the super doctor, but whatever. Yeah. And he it just none of the scene really makes sense. And it just feels like it's only in there because they're like, well, this has been the villain of the whole film. So we have to have John Wick fight him at the end. And other than the great last line, be seeing you, John. Yeah, which is great down for a final action sequence in a movie defined by spectacular action sequences. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I, I agree with everything you said. I think I, and, and it gets back to that budget thing, I think a little bit, cause I definitely understand why, uh, from a practical filmmaking standpoint, but I, I do kind of wish, I think in an ideal world, cause the question is what holds this movie back? I think in the, the perfect version of this movie, moves things around such that one of those really big action set pieces is at the end. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know functionally how to do that. Um, it's still a great movie, obviously, but I think if, if, if that one change would kind of catapult it into like, you know, even, even a higher status than it's already at. Yeah. Um, in terms of what else holds it back, I don't really have that much. I do kind of think, uh, this is just a couple nitpicks real quick. Some of the music is kind of just Okay. Yeah, uh, it kind of reminded me of the first Iron Man in a weird way that there's seen that there's moments of like, ha, rock music. This is a badass character, and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, okay cool guys. Uh, you know, yeah, uh, and cool it's also story, got bro. a this couple lyrics that are clearly used to like connect to the plot. That's always oh my cheesy. god, like when it's like we the, killed that, the that one song. That's you. yeah, yeah. Or no, we it's, we kill strangers so we don't kill the ones we love. Yeah, it keeps yeah, repeating it's, that. It's the it's stupidest rough. line I've ever heard my entire life. Every it's time like I was playing, Iron I was song, like in Iron Man. Yes, it's like, yes. Yeah. It's like I, I get the so, plot of the movie. It's about assassins. Yeah, cool guys. We get it. We get it. Um, I don't know if I should have put this in what holds it back. I'm not sure if I'm totally there for Willem Dafoe's character. Yeah, I, I just think I'm it's weird that I'm confused for so long and then I'm supposed to care when he dies. Like I just, I just kind of don't. And I'm just like, okay. And then that's also the impetus that stops him. Cause he almost is out. Remember? Yeah. And then he gets, which I think I forgot. I don't think I remembered that uh, sequence of events, 
that he actually does what he wants to do, leaves, and then his friend gets killed and he comes back to re-engage with the mob. Which is also the villains in this movie make the worst choices, which is just... Yeah, it's a classic example of that. Why did you kill William Defoe? That seems like a bad choice. Whatever. Yeah. Um, But yeah, go on. Sorry. No, no, no. That's all I had. Just that I... Uh, again like it's i'm nitpicking i i just sort of think that that whole arc that whole character i'm sort of not there for it i'm sort of i'm, I'm not particularly intrigued by it. i don't remember it i don't think of it when i think of what makes this movie great yeah yeah i think you know it that kind of connects to a large i actually have a large what doesn't yeah really, i don't have any other big things of why it, what holds it back so go ahead and that kind of connects to connects to it. It's really like two parts. And I guess what I would summarize it as is every time the movie strays into explicit seriousness or philosophy, um, sure. I really disconnect with it. So like everything about the ex-wife is so unbelievably unimportant to me. It's crucial yeah. to the film. Don't get me wrong. It's crucial for setting up this character. But man, whenever it's on the screen, I don't care. Like the dog is the only motivation of his life that I care about <laughs> at all. And other Absolutely. than like, the pulling the plug scene, which those always get me because that seems hard. Um, like other than that, th- that when those scenes happen, it pulls away from that intentional silliness of the film, the absurdity of the film that makes it so enjoyable in a way that I don't really yeah. find add much to the film. But it also happens a lot with the Defoe character. Like they have all these conversations about like explicit philosophy, like the scene at the funeral with Keanu, which I guess is about the nature of suffering and accepting the good with the bad or whatever. Or Mm -hmm. like when the Russian mob boss is talking to John Wick about God punishing misdeeds. It's such a serious conversation that's still cheesy. Don't get me wrong, but it does not fit the tone of the film to me. Um, And I think they're trying to build depth that I just don't need quite frankly. So actually you, you kind of made me realize like a bigger complaint I have with all three movies, but I think it's, it's essentially the same thing you're saying, but I'm, and, and this may come up in our essays later. I don't know. I'm deeply uninterested in uh, the worldview of these movies. Does yeah. that make sense? I, I think that they are trying to pass off a kind of perspective a kind of philosophy i don't think they're trying to do it very seriously i don't think they wrote this as a treatise you know but it definitely is trying to convey that these characters have a struggle with how they view the world and all of that i do not care about yeah i kind of don't like it and then on top of it i also don't care about it i'm like i kind of this is i think it takes away from the silliness of the film Yes. in a bad way yeah um, and all three of them do it you know i think you're right i think you're right and um yeah i just think you're right and I, yeah I, I do think we'll talk about that in the essays because it is a worldview that does not speak to me but no. when it invests in that worldview rather than just being um absurd stupid. i'm yeah, yeah and stupid and takes itself seriously in in a negative way not in the good way of like drawing you in. Yeah. I, I get very pulled out of this movie. Um, yeah. So I have two other nitpicks before we move yeah, on. Yeah, go ahead. One, the acting from the majority of the Russians in terms of accent work is terrible. <laughs> it's rough. I mean, it's just, I, I applaud them for speaking in Russian, but their accents are 
abominable. It's like, especially the younger son. Oh my goodness. It's, I was about to say the, the guy from game of Thrones. And I think the thing I maybe didn't know this before is how much it dips in and out. Did you notice that? Like he'll get, he'll say one word, like really Russian or one sentence. And then the next one he'll sound not Russian at all. And I'm like, I actually kind of like, he's not even trying. And I'm like, what what are we doing here? It is rough. It is rough. And then also relatedly, the scenes where they light up the subtitles with different colors at random times. Just doesn't oh, you don't do like anything. that. Yeah, it just didn't do anything for me. I that's not a, that. I, not I a huge. Say that the, yeah. yeah, that's fair. I won't say it's in the positive column for me, but I, I, I think it's kind of charming. I, I'm OK with it. I go with I it. I think it was charming in the scene where they're talking about him as the boogeyman and then they do it throughout the film. And I'm kind of like, maybe it's just overdone. That is true. I don't really I know. We, I actually could agree with that. It's a little bit yeah. overdone. Anything so, else in terms of? Yeah, I want to do. Can we do one last one for what made it good real quick? Yeah. Yeah, I think the the last thing that really made this movie work is just the casting in most of the characters. Not all yeah. the characters is phenomenal. I mean, the ton. There's yeah. a ton of great side characters in this. Um, not sure about William Defoe's character. Um, we'll get to him later, I'm sure. I think yeah. the casting of the car is pretty great. Great. Um, when he's Absolutely, driving yeah. into the airfield, you're like, this is so unnecessary, but I'm glad you're doing it. But, <laughs> but mostly, happy. Yeah. being serious, like Ian McShane as Winston, the hotel owner, is amazing. Iconic. The yeah. hotel manager, the guy from The Wire, which there's a lot of Wire characters in this. Random I did thing. know that. that uh, yeah. the, the, the one assassin who gets killed, who's, by yeah. the way, I always hate, I, I'm so sad when he gets killed every oh, time. Because I, I love I him like, from The Wire. It's great. Yeah. But yeah, yeah like, that's the, the hotel manager and Winston are two of the best casting jobs of an action film for side characters ever. And like you said, it's iconic. And those so easily could have been miss like misses that change the entire power of this movie. Cause I think yeah. Ian McShane in particular, you're like, if that guy's not in this movie, it's a noticeably worse movie. So I would go, I would go even further and say that the second and third movie built themselves entirely on those two casting decisions. Yeah. Absolutely. On um, the the concierge or the head concierge or whoever he is, and Ian McShane. Um, yeah, it's it's just amazing, and it's it gets back to there, there's a certain um, charisma to this movie. There's a charisma to the world that they're creating, and if that's not in all of these side characters, or at least most of these side characters, you're not invested. But because you see Ian McShane, who says Jonathan whenever he sees him, um, because that happens you just want to know more. You just like, who is this guy? This guy's great. I want to know. I want to see everything he does. Sign me uh, up. Sign me up. I'll, I'll watch anything. All right, I think that covers why this movie works. What holds it back? Do you have any stray thoughts, Mike? John, I have a ton of them. Do you want me okay. to start? Actually, wait, I'm going to start because I only have one and then you can just live your life. Okay. <laughs> so so this is a big one. Is it just me or is there a non-zero chance that John Wick broke into a kennel at the yes! end and straight oh up gosh! stole someone's adorable bolt? This is what I put down. <laughs> what is happening in that scene? Because so, it really seems like maybe he just stole someone's dog. And I'm like, right? so in hindsight, when I watched it, I was like, wait a second. That just looks like someone's dog. He steals like, it. 
is John oh continuing the cycle of this movie by stealing someone else's <laughs> dog who's going to come like, after him? Like, some poor is family that? is going to come back from their vacation to Hawaii or something and be like, oh, let's go pick up our dog. Oh, what's this? A random guy from the street <laughs> broke into your kennel and stole our specific dog? Not like set dogs free or something, just stole ours. Just one. Yeah. I, I was just so flabbergasted. It's I was like, wait so a second. Like, I'm hoping that like a dog fighting kennel or something, and we just yeah, are part of the story. But it's I actually like he just stole someone's dog. I want you to know, I rewinded to see if, like, maybe there was a sign that was like, oh, this is a pound, and these dogs are all going to be put down or something. No, nothing. Doesn't tell you anything about it. And I was just like, I would assume that's a kennel. I would, would assume think, that dog belongs to someone. You would think Anyways. he would have learned from his own experiences to be more empathetic. But no, John Wick's <laughs> a that. It's really a powerful scene in the movie. I guess it's like a nice reminder of what we've been talking about, which is John Wick is a sociopath and the movie convinced us that we should like him. And really the movie ends and you're like, Absolutely. oh no, he would just steal someone's dog. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm just so happy you, you okay, had the same so thought. Anyways, have, what other straight thoughts have, do you have? Yeah, that was my number one thought. Just FYI. All bold. All Beautiful. caps. I love it. Just like, whose dog yeah. is this? I got a related one. Are we sure John Wick is a good dog owner and should have another dog? <laughs> like, first of all, he gives a dog a bowl of cereal and milk at the beginning of this movie. Yeah, I don't think that's like, good. What the hell are you doing? That's not what dogs eat. Um, but then he also almost kills himself on the airfield, which either means the dog's in the car and he's going to kill the dog with him because the dog was <laughs> in the car earlier, or he's going to leave the dog to starve to death in his house. Either Both of those way, are bad. You're like, John Wick might be a terrible dog owner. Just throwing that yeah. out there. Yeah. Wait, so, wait a second. I'm going to, I may have to update you later. I'm going to text my sister who's a vet. Um, <laughs> just ask. Hey, is it okay to feed a puppy milk and cereal? Or is that bad for the dog? I just want to know. I'll give you that update later if she my gets back to reaction. Because he says, he's like, you'll have to eat this until I can get you some kibbles and bits or whatever. And I'm like, yeah. I actually think it's better for the dog not to eat tonight. Like, <laughs> it's probably better for it than giving it processed cereal and milk. But whatever. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm we'll work. find out. Maybe, maybe it's fine. But we'll find out. Anyway. Yeah. So a couple other ones just to throw those out there. Um, first... I am always wondering in this movie if John Wick actually is a good assassin or if all the other assassins are just terrible because like <laughs> Perkins sucks at her job, quite yeah, frankly. Objectively. Yeah. And William Defoe gets captured and killed super easily. Like, yeah, unbelievably so. So I, I don't know. Just a straight thought. I'm like, maybe all these guys are just bad. Well, um, I'm going to add on to that real quick. Uh, have you noticed that no one seems to be able to hit a target except John Wick? Yeah, he gets shot at a lot. Uh, the the older son hits him once in the Kevlar vest, and I think that's the only time he gets actually shot. And there's a lot of guns in this movie, and he shoots a lot of people. It doesn't really add up. It Anyways. really doesn't. Yeah, it really doesn't. Um, and I mean, not to mention like the safe house scene really stretches the definition of the safe house because <laughs> apparently those snipers are terrible because that was the easiest yeah. assault in the whole movie. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> But no, yeah, I guess uh, my favorite question is, did John Wick, or other than the dog one, is did John Wick's wife know what he did for a living before he met her? 
And that's a really like, good question. Did she ever ask why he is putting a crate full of guns and coins into the wet concrete under the floor of their basement? Or does he just like do this when she's out at work? I don't know. Can I, can I, can I one up that question? Yeah. Uh, how did he meet his wife? Good question. <laughs> if you really think about it, if he's the circles he's in, he's apparently he's a regular at the Continental. He has a usual drink at the bar there. He's Do you think killing. regular people can stay at the Continental and that's how? I, maybe, maybe his wife came to the, but that seems even less likely <laughs> that his wife just came and checked in <laughs> and was at the bar surrounded by the assassins unknowingly. And he's Caesar. They strike up a conversation seems, about also, what did they talk about that way? <laughs> yeah. What know. do they connect Murder? on? Does, yeah. Story she's dogs. like, Oh, I'm a, she's like, Oh, I'm a nurse. And he's like, cool. I, uh, you know, I do things. I have family money. I don't know. What is he? <laughs> cool. I'm a regular at the hospital on my own way. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Doesn't Maybe actually add up in any way. Dogs. They're like, we both would like a puppy. And yeah, but wait a second. We've unearthed. We're just going down a rabbit hole now. Uh, they obviously don't both like dogs because they didn't already have one. That's true. Maybe she hated <laughs> right? dogs. Maybe she hated dogs. Maybe it was just like, well, now that I'm dead, you can have a dog. <laughs> because maybe this was a recurring argument in their relationship. Oh, man. Oh, or maybe he hated dogs and she wanted one. And it's kind of like an F you. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, of a stab in the gut. No pun intended. Okay. Oh, okay. I think we, I think, did we exhaust this? Do we have anything else no, on, have, on the improbable two relationship? Two yeah, last go ahead. Ones. The first one is, is this the best, best bathhouse fight in any action movie? And the only competitor is a history of violence. A history of violence. And yeah. He's pretty nude. So I'm going to give it to this one because I did not enjoy that scene. Did we um, both, but did the more, we just both convince, wait, 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 did we just, no, I wasn't. Did we just both confuse a history yeah. of violence with um, Eastern Promises? Yes, we did. By same director. Yes, Good we call. did. We Good both catch. did that. We both had, well, we were both thinking Vigo. We were both thinking the director. Eastern Promises and he's, the movie. He is but naked yes. in both movies at a point. So. Yeah, that's true. You know? But Good he doesn't kill Vigo. any Russians in a bathhouse in History of Violence. Eastern Promises. Not, not that you. I remember. Yeah. But yes, Eastern Promises might edge it out for a great bathhouse shooting it's hard to say it's hard to say and then, yeah it might i mean weird that's pretty... both russian i know well russian that's big the... on bathhouses they are actually the dot yeah oh. they that's cool. true didn't uh, know that learned something yeah. new today there you go and that actually connects to the last right thought which is is it time for the russian mob to come back as villains in movies like or just russians in general you no. know as a russian major i really appreciate it but uh there's just something about russian that sounds really intimidating unless it's coming from the guy from game of thrones yeah. uh it just kind of makes you really villainous sounding and you know russians killing dogs that's a pretty good villain so i don't know i mean i was just i think that the biggest problem that. yeah the biggest problem is that russia as a as a um political adversary is a politically charged conversation right now oh, and fair. so and so i you know i think the biggest problem is that uh movies action movies um, usually take a more conservative view of the world and right now the conservatives are super down with fascism um and so and so they're completely on board with russia uh because they are fascists and so i think i genuinely think that's why you won't see russia as a 
adversary in many um, uh, action movies for at least the next couple years until we all settle on the fact that, yeah, maybe fascism isn't great. Um, I think that's going to hold us back. Well, no take, uh, no takes on that. No, no, that is all I got for stray thoughts. So, okay. uh, Well that, I mean, that basically covered it. Okay, well, now we're going to move into uh, the last section of our podcast, which we call Talking Points, which is essentially just a brief monologue or essay about a part of the film that really uh, stuck with us or hit home for us or uh, moved us in some way. And usually we tie this to something like spirituality or something from our life that we find uh, important. So, John, you're going to go first. What is your uh, talking point going to be about today? So a lot of... TV procedurals and particularly monster of the week shows will pull one particular trick over and over and over. And this is the kind of thing where once you know it and you look for it, you'll start to see it everywhere. Uh, I first noticed this trick on one of my all time favorite guilty pleasure shows, burn notice. So in burn notice, we have a lead character who's an ex spy and every episode he has to help out a client who's usually just a completely innocent person that's caught up in um, some problem with this bad guy. And usually this bad guy is someone who is blackmailing him or threatening him or defrauding him or stealing from him, from this client. And in the course of every episode, this ex-spy, our lead character, will almost always end up causing harm to the bad guy. He's going to set up circumstances that leads to this bad guy's arrest or financial ruination or humiliation Uh, or sometimes even death. And that's where this trick comes into play because every episode goes out of its way to provide what I call vengeance fuel. Vengeance fuel is, from a storytelling perspective, a convenient trait or action which gives our protagonist license to do whatever cruel act they want to upon a bad guy in such a way that we, the audience, will go along with it. Burn Notice is particularly good at very blatant (laughs) vengeance fuel. A throwaway remark at the beginning of an episode will identify an otherwise unremarkable gangster as someone who robs from sick children, for example. By the way, that's an actual situation from an actual episode of Burn Notice. One of the bad guys was stealing medicine from sick children. And now that we've established this, our good guys can do whatever they want to the bad guys and we'll be on board with it. It's important to clarify that Vengeance Fuel isn't always bad writing. And in fact, I think John Wick is maybe the best example of Vengeance Fuel done really well, primarily because the film is aware of what it's doing. I mentioned earlier, studies tell us that movie audiences hate watching dogs get killed even more than children or families. The whole premise of this movie rests on the fact that this one act of aggression gives John Wick license to inflict an immense level of suffering and death and and destruction, and we'll be on board with it the entire time. What I think is kind of interesting is the fact that we really need that fuel. We really need that excuse to buy into what is happening on screen. There's something inside of us that, that doesn't tolerate unearned violence. Imagine the film John Wick if the puppy didn't exist, if they had beaten him up and stolen his car. The resulting bloodbath would 
probably feel at least a little bit uncomfortable because it would feel unearned. And it makes me think of a scene halfway through the movie. John is in his hotel room. He pulls up a video of his wife. I interpret that scene as John kind of reminding himself why he's fighting, which sounds noble, but to put it a different way, I think the character John Wick is filling himself with vengeance fuel. You might even call it hatred fuel. He's reliving the shred of happiness that was taken away from him, and he's turning that anger into action. It's a potent effect, and in a way I worry that it's maybe the most realistic part of the movie. Not to say that we go on killing sprees when we're angry, hopefully, but just that a lot of us will keep souvenirs of past wrongs and hold on to them for vengeance fuel. And the thing about those souvenirs is that they allow us to minimize the humanity of those that may have perpetrated the wrongs. I can dwell on this one thing that was done to me. I can nurture it and feed it and sit in it day after day, and it can I can burn it to fuel my hatred. But that whole time, I'm refusing to see the other person who did that thing as anything besides that one wrong. And in a way, I get to convince myself of their lack of humanity. And in the same way that the Russians killing the dog buys John Wick license in our eyes to do whatever he wants, someone doing something unjust to us buys us license in our own eyes to treat them however we want to. What's more, I think sitting in that hatred tends to erode the soul. It destroys the parts of you that yearn for healing and restoration because it gives you a facsimile of restoration, but without healing. I think it's in its own non-serious way, the movie John Wick actually understands this. It's why the question of his retirement comes up over and over again. He wants to be out because he wants to escape the violence, but those around him know that indulging vengeance just a little bit will jumpstart a cycle, a cycle of violence that's unescapable. You had yourself convinced that the past held no sway over the future, Winston says to John at one point. And I think the most pressing spiritual question that I can pull out of this movie is that what parts of your past are you letting control your future by not letting go of them? Or to put it another way, what vengeance fuel do you return to over and over and over again? So, Mike, for you, I wrote three questions that I'm, I'm curious, you know, in terms of what you think about this in the context of that. The first one, I think, is really key. How great is Bird Notice as a show? Yeah, uh, the moment you started with that, I got really excited. And I wish we had just talked about Bird Notice instead. Um, when writing this, I actually thought, man, we should do TV shows at one point. It is a guilty pleasure, but it is. A oh, great yeah. Show. Yeah. And it's such a formulaic show. And 
I don't think I've ever identified it with that language, but uh, you're right. Every episode of Burn Notice is, hey, here's a reason for these people to do horrible things. Get on board. And I and do again, every time. The, you always get on board. And again, the best part is how blatant it is. Yeah, it will it's just, It'll be like an otherwise normal kind of criminal character and everyone's kind of criminals. But it's like, oh, but that guy, that guy beats his wife. And then you're like, cool, <laughs> I'm in. I'll, I'll, whatever you do to this guy. I'm on board with. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 the more real questions I have, you know, you don't have to, necess- you don't have to really get into it too much, but I'm just curious if, if you identify with this idea of having a, a trophy or a memory or this, this thing you return to that you use as vengeance fuel. I mean, I can say, I can speak for myself. I've done that constantly. I'll ha- I have whole relationships that end up going downhill because I won't let go of, this one thing that I'm like, I can't believe you did that to me. Yeah. And I'll just hold on to it forever. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the word that you use that really stuck out to me is the dehuman dehumanization or dehumanizing. Yeah. Right. Cause I think one of those things that just comes with resentment, which is what the fuel of that really is, is I want to keep resentment. I want to keep resenting this person. Um, usually because of how that makes me feel, whether it's superior or if I want to live in a space of self-pity, like, oh my gosh, this person ruined my life. Um, it, it kind of, what the, it has to rely on a simplification of the other person, right? Yeah. Where that entire person has to become nothing more than the sum, summation of how wounded I feel. And right. thus their actions become simple. They're just trying to hurt me all their complexity of, you know, what made them that way, what led to their decision, what I played in most, the role I played in a lot of conflicts, that all gets lost. It gets simplified to the point of non-existence and their complexity vanishes. And without complexity, they're an object. They're not a subject. They're not a human being. So I absolutely think I rely on dehumanizing to fuel resentments any number of ways. For me, it's almost always memories, like you said. Mm-hmm. It's that one time that person said that thing to me or that one time that I didn't get my just due from this person. Right. Um, but the other thing that really stood out to me, I'll be honest, John, was how often I do that to myself, right? Um, sure. I will hone in on something bad. We'll just simplify and say I did something bad to somebody, something I'm guilt- I feel guilty for or shame for. And I will hold on to that action for, I mean, I've done this a time in my life for years yeah. so that I can have an excuse to keep punishing myself or to keep, uh, uh, you know, when I was still struggling with addiction, to keep using and destroying my life because I'm not worthy. After what I did to that person, I deserve this punishment, a self-inflicted punishment of shame, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, even it's, a, move, it's even the same move. Yeah. It's even a trope online, uh, a meme really that, you know, when you're going to bed often, how come your brain will pull up always these awful memories of things you've done? Yeah. And, yeah. uh, sometimes it's, it's things you did that were, that were, um, unjust or, or, you know, mali- malicious in some way. Sometimes it's just mistakes and, and things like that, but we almost seem programmed to fixate on those and to, let those sort of sit with us and dwell on us and, and, you know, just getting stuck on that. Oh my gosh, all these things that I've done. 
And there is a level of, I do that for other people and I need to let go of that, but I do that for myself and I need to let go of that as well. I think it's yeah. a great point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's funny too, without, I, I initially had included this, but it was going a little bit too long without getting, we've already gotten a little bit political this episode without getting too political again. I think that this also, is actually so we, interesting. We did not. You got a yeah, little political. I, I heard you say a lot of things. Um, <laughs> I think that this is, I know that's something you and I both are, are, are very interested in and, and concerned about is the way that um, the prison population in the U.S. is treated yeah. and the way that we yeah. think about incarceration. Yeah, And I think this gets to that thing. We both are big fans of um, Brian Stevenson, and he has that quote of, Imagine if you were defined by the worst thing you ever had done. Yeah. If that was, you know, the label you wore in front of everyone was, was the worst thing you've ever done and you could never move past that. And I think that societally we, we engage in this same vengeance fuel. We will, we will take someone and reduce them to you murdered this innocent person. Therefore that's the end of the conversation. That's all you are. You are not allowed to be anything else. And by reducing that, I can justify, you know, locking them up in a situation without rehabilitation for six years, or even in in a worst case scenario, I can justify death penalty or killing them and stuff. No, Um, absolutely. I mean, I think Stevenson has a great quote, which I'm not going to get it exactly, but to paraphrase, he says, the question is always, does this person deserve to die when it comes to the death penalty? And the question we should be asking is, do we deserve the right to kill? And, and that's like, what you're talking about, because when we ask that first question, what we're doing is we are allowing ourselves to use that vengeance fuel to justify anything. They deserve yeah. to die. And we never stop to say, you called it eroding the soul. Uh, it's any number of things, but do we really have the right to determine whether a life should be extinguished? Um, yeah. And I think you're right. I think you're spot on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's all I have. Uh, it's it's an interesting part. I'll be honest. I worked a little bit hard to pull something out of this movie, but I do. The more I think about that, about that nature of how we need to create a vengeance fuel situation in order to buy into this kind of movie. Uh, again, it's the kind of thing where once you know about it, you'll start noticing it in a lot of places. And I guess the only other question I have for you is. How much do you think that, and I don't know, you may not be able to, to formulate an answer very quickly, but do you think that that has a noticeable effect on how we perceive reality? The fact that so much of our culture, cultural upbringing creates this these situations of, well, this character does X to deserve something, and therefore we can do whatever we want to them. Therefore, any means is justified. Um, I don't yeah. know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm a, a pastor in a spiritual community, a Christian community. And one of the most haunting, daunting tasks is to unwire Christians from the belief that the death penalty is just. Um, yeah. And I believe that that comes from a cultural narrative that movies like this propagate, if I'm being honest, um, yeah. that there is just, I mean, you see it all the time where it's, you could have any number of conversations about the, the sacredness of life and 
and then our inability as human beings to act as appropriate judges and how those two things collided or collide to make us incapable of without being compromised, without bias, making a decision to kill a person. Right. Yeah. And yet whenever you get into those conversations, the person's going to turn back to, well, what if it's a pedophile or what if it's this, they're going to pick a singular action that in their mind fully exonerates any and everything done to them. Uh, And then even to lesser degrees, when you start talking about things like feeding prisoners or making sure they have good clothes, good conditions, I mean, not to trigger warning for people who have been through this, but when you talk about sexual assault in prison, it's well, that person shouldn't have gotten in prison, implying that that person deserves to be assaulted sexually. One of the worst things we can do as human beings to another human being. And that comes from people who call themselves Christ followers, who call themselves believers in, in even pro-life. I mean, not to get political, but they would hold up pro-life values in other conversations. So, yeah, I mean, do I think that this creates those narratives? No, I think it's that deeper human impulse, like you said, but it certainly feeds them and it certainly makes us feel like it's okay to hold them um, Mm -hmm. or that this is in some way justice and, which I'll get into a little more in, in my monologue, but I think that's sure. that's absolutely something that's a part of that equation in our culture. And to, and to address something you brought up, just, just very briefly, because I think it's a really fascinating conversation that may extend beyond the boundaries of this context, but just to really quickly uh, talk about this, I, I, I do think there is maybe something problematic about these kind of movies. Uh, at the same time, I think it's not... I sort of try to fall between the two sides of it in terms of there's some people who say movies like these don't have any impact on me and don't have any impact on culture. And you should take them completely as superficial entertainment and just live with it like that. And I'm not totally sold out to that. I also don't particularly align myself with, you know, the, the moms against uh, violent films or whatever the, you know, those kinds of groups that are like kids watch these movies and then go and, and shoot up schools or something or play video games. I don't think that really captures it either um, because I don't think that people work that way. I think that's a simplistic view of the forces of culture and of the forces of, of humanity. I always appreciated the quote from Marilyn Manson. There's an, he's interviewed in Bowling for Columbine. And I know that probably people have hangups with, with that movie and with we're really the getting record, political today. I know. Right. Uh, there's this great quote from Marilyn Manson and he has this thing where, you know, cause people were sort of attacking him in the wake of the Columbine shootings. And they were pointing out that the, that the uh, perpetrators of that crime um, were big fans of that genre of music. I don't remember if explicitly they listened to him, but certainly he was under attack for it. And I remember that he says in that interview, you know, the day of the Columbine shooting uh, was also the day that, uh, President Clinton dropped the most bombs, I think, that had been dropped in the entire Gulf War up to that point um, and killed the most people, obviously, by correlation. And he says, I'm paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect of it's crazy that you're going to put all of that burden onto someone like me when the leaders of the nation are creating more violence than has ever been seen in history. I think that's a better view of how culture works. It's not one-to-one. It's not that there is this movie or this video game and it causes me to go out and do something violent. 
But I, I think what happens is I, I kind of view it as a cloud that's hanging over us. Yeah. And things feed into that cloud and lean it one way or the other. And then that cloud over time will develop a character that pushes on me and pushes on everyone. And I think the biggest mistake you can make is limiting the number of things that feed into that cloud. It's not just music and video games and and movies. Those things do feed into culture, but it's also uh, rhetoric. It's also, um, you know, warfare and politics and uh, family dynamics. All of these different things will also create this culture that hangs over us and unknowingly pushes us towards these different directions. So in a sense, you know, both these things do have an impact on us. And that is something that we should take into, into consideration, but also it's not as simple as, well, you know, just don't make violent movies. And then suddenly the world is peaceful. Yeah. I think it's kind of a both and thing. Um, Sorry, that was a little bit of a digression, but it's just a fascinating topic to me, especially in context of movies like this. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or we can just move on. No, I mean, I think you, you covered it. I think it's, You know, it's the danger is do I know how what I am consuming impacts me or what it's feeding me? Um, And that's where conversations about violence and how we consume violence matters. The film itself Mm -hmm. does nothing to make me violent. But if I live in a culture of violence, if I live in a, a worldview that, like you said, glorifies warfare or, and believe me, I get that far more from our real world than I do movies. Um, yeah. If if I already have the the mindset, the worldview that I have never investigated, that I've never questioned, interrogated, deconstructed, that supports this film or films like its view of justice, then yeah, that's going to negatively feed into that. But it's feeding mm-hmm. into something that's already there. Um, yeah. It's feeding into something that's evident, and it's not the film's fault. You know. Yeah. Um, quite frankly, I think if I start blaming something on a movie I saw, I'm trying to look away from my own responsibility to investigate yeah. my own beliefs and worldview more than anything else. So, yeah, I disagree with what you said. And actually, you just you just uh, created a a very decent, or I guess explained a, a very, I think, great way of of viewing this in the context of personal responsibility which is i I think a huge part of this is just be aware of how the things that you consume impact you and we've had this conversation many times in the context of of lots of stuff we've had this conversation in the context of alcohol for example that we both know we've both been in and out of um of kind of recovery culture it was a big part of how we view spirituality and I think that a a very important part of that culture says, hey, listen, some people can engage with alcohol and be fine. Um, and, and I can engage. So like, you know, a big thing for me was realizing, oh, there's nothing problematic in the way I engage with alcohol. Yeah. I can I can observe the way I do it. I can observe. I need to be conscious of it. I need to at some point evaluate that. But I have and I evaluated it doesn't really have a negative impact on my life. But that's not true for everyone. And that's not true for everything with me. There are things I might engage with that have a negative impact on me, that push me towards things that I don't want to uh, be like or I don't want to associate with. 
And so I think the, the key is just that self-awareness and that willingness to, to um, sort of dive into wh- how these things are impacting me and recognizing pretty much everything does on some level. Well, John, um, we're going to touch on some of the same things, but I don't think that's a a bad thing at all. Um, I want to begin by acknowledging something I said earlier, which is that this genre of movies uh, is really a guilty pleasure for me, Uh, the revenge genre in general. For the most part, I actually tend to fall in line with uh, what most movie fanatics or nerds or fans would consider good cinema. You know, I love There Be Blood. I love The Godfather. I love the classics of cinema. But man, this genre is one that is, one, often panned by critics, and two, that I eat up every time I watch John Wick, or really almost any movie like it, even objectively bad ones. I love them. And as I watch John Wick, I remember just how much I love this movie. Um, And I think it's because the foundation of the revenge film is something that attracts my personality type. I'm someone that is oriented naturally towards issues of justice or to a view of the inevitability of justice. And I think the inevitability of justice in a warped way is at the heart of this film, especially justice for those that think that they are somehow beyond it. The trope of these movies is that evil people who get away with evil only do so until they run up against the guy who they shouldn't have messed with. The one who can take justice into his own hands like those that the villainous characters considered weak couldn't. The one who's able to exact righteous retribution on all involved. I mean, this is John Wick. Beneath its awesome action shots and its awesome set pieces, this is simply a movie about the powerful, corrupt, and clearly wicked thinking that they can treat John Wick the way that they treat everyone else that they see as beneath them or weak or incapable of defending themselves, only to find that they messed with the boogeyman, someone uniquely qualified to turn their evil against them for good. And my obsession with this trope fascinates me for two reasons. First, its clearly stated worldview, as we've discussed, goes against everything that I believe. I am a pacifist, and this movie fundamentally rejects that as an appropriate response to issues of violence and evil. And second, I know that this is fantasy, that this idea of punitive, retributive justice somehow evening the scales doesn't actually work. The premise at the heart of this movie is that we can use the tools of violence, harm, injustice, evil, to make up for violence, harm, injustice, or evil caused against us. That good guys can beat bad guys using the same tools of evil as they do, but for better purposes. That somehow, the perpetuation of evil to defeat evil brings about goodness, peace. And that appeals to me on a deep level. It's so black and white. It's so comfortable. It's so mouth-watering. 
This idea that evil gets a taste of its own medicine, the shoe it gets to be on the other foot for once, and that's what resolves the worst things in our world. And yet I know this is a myth. First, obviously, the acts of violence, retribution, injustice, retaliation, revenge don't balance any scales. Those lost to evil stay lost in the end. The dog doesn't come back in John Wick. Committing to violence in response to violence will never bring the victim back. But second, and more importantly, they also don't end anything. Not just in a mushy, idealistic fantasy way, but in reality. See, in our reality, the truth is that these things are just cycles that never end. The wounder wounds, the wounded wounds back harder, then they retaliate for the wounded's retaliation, and these things just always escalate and continue. Retaliation responds to retaliation. People respond to wounds and respond to wounds, and it never stops. To the point that eventually, neither side even remembers what started the conflict in the first place. The Russian mob is defeated at the end of John Wick, and all goodness of our universe is restored through this justice. Evil is over. But that's just not how it works. Just look at human history to see how untrue that really is. Look at the Middle East. Look at the West and how it's engaged with so many of those Eastern cultures. Those things can't end. They've taken on so many layers that it's almost impossible to remember why it even started. It's just violence begetting violence. The truth is the revenge movies, they rely on a myth that, though appealing, holds no truth. The myth that we can participate in what we call evil without being consumed by it, without it costing us anything. That we can maintain a moral high ground or be the hero of a story while using the same tools as those we call villains for using those tools. I mean, this may be the greatest myth of our entire culture, and it's something that movies like John Wick thrive on. I mean, the truth is, evil, violence, and justice are a disease, not a person. They're not an object that can be destroyed. Evil's only goal is to infect, propagate, and spread. And thus, its greatest victory isn't when it crushes us or when we crush another person with its tools. No, its greatest victory is when we choose to continuously fight with its tools at all, to become evil ourselves in a foolish belief that by doing so, we are actually defeating it. And this is a truth that I think all of the great spiritual traditions have discovered, that ultimately the only way to defeat evil is to step outside of it, to break of its cycle, to simply refuse to play its game, not in a passive way, but in the third way that has defined the nonviolent protests of our time and the spiritual traditions of our history. This third way defined by neither of our two base biological human instincts of fight or flight. This way where we let evil do its worst. We face it head on. We take all it has to offer. And in the end, what we refuse is not to let it get away with it, but it's we refuse to let it make us like it. We tell it that no matter what, it cannot win because it cannot have us. It cannot defeat us. It cannot take our humanity by making us act inhuman in response to it. And in doing so, the third way accomplishes, I think, two great victories. 
One, we actually maintain our integrity. We rise above. But two, we hold up a mirror to the human being perpetuating it, the human being caught in the lie that violence will bring peace. We force them to see themselves as they are through how they have treated a human being on their level who refuses to respond in kind. And in this way, it subverts expectations, it undermines power, it challenges authority, all without us ever throwing a punch. I think this is how evil is defeated. And yet, even knowing that, I still so often refuse to live as if it's true. The truth is that I know all of that in an intelligent, cognitive way and still feel so drawn to this movie because quite frankly, it gives me a pass. It gives me a way out of owning it. The idea of revenge or retaliation being the answer is just an easier, more comfortable fantasy to believe and live within. It's less dangerous for me and my well-being. It asks less of me and I risk less in that worldview. I just prefer a world in which I get to hit back harder and never get hit back in return. Even in the smallest moments of my life, yelling at the person who cut me off in traffic, saying something snarky and mean to the person who dinged my ego, uh, throwing shade back at my wife when she's done something that upset me. It just feels good. And yet every time I do it, I never actually see myself or my world change for the better. I become more and more judgmental and capable of confusing my injustice with justice. I become more and more reactionary rather than present or centered. I become more and more likely to cause wounds intended or unintended. I become less and less human in how I treat myself and others. I mean, I love John Wick as a movie, but I must always watch for this deeper, darker thing inside of me, this thing that this movie appeals to when I'm off-center, the one that tells me that this is right and just and the world should work this way and I should be John Wick. I must always remember that this is fantasy, that reality is far harder, that I can't be John Wick and no one should, that there is a better third way that if I'm willing to buy into, I can enjoy a film like John Wick, but still go a different way in the truth of my world and actually be a part of its healing. And that's, I think, what I got out of this film. So John, I don't know, how do you respond to that? I know it kind of overlapped a little bit with yours, but what what is your reaction to that? I mean, yeah, absolute rage that you stole my topic. Um, no, it's <laughs> it's there, there's a little crossover, but I think they're both things that we both talk about a lot. And, and I definitely responded to a lot of stuff in there. I think, um, you know, the first thing I thought of, the way you were describing how we look for these characters that are going to repair the world in some way, is I look, I think about superheroes mm. and the fact that, you know, I've read a lot of very interesting people and, and far smarter people than me talking about what it really means that we're, we have this resurgence of superhero characters. And if you really think about it from a certain perspective, John Wick is a superhero film. Um, 
in the way that the that he is characterized and like you said in the way that he is going to write these wrongs uh they all feed or you know depending on how you look at it feed or are born out of the same desire to have one strong person give the evil forces what they deserve and he's kind of a freak but alan moore i think is does such a good job of of articulating these ideas on a lot of his work. And, and it was kind of just something I was thinking of that he's so terrified of the idea of superheroes, um, which of course puts him in an interesting place given that he writes a lot of superhero comics, but he's terrified of it because he, he recognizes it as a form of, of fascism, which we've already brought up, but you know, not to make light of it, it, it really is sort of what this kind of worldview is. It's saying don't you want one strong person to just cut through all the BS and, and give the evil what it deserves to just not get caught up in all of this gray stuff and to just actually, you know, enact this vengeance, this righteousness upon the bad, the bad parts of the world. And I think you're absolutely right that the, the beauty of third way thinking is it is the only response to evil that doesn't indulge in evil itself and i think that's so critical because and i think you and i would both clarify too that we we believe in injustice and we believe in trying to fight back against injustice but it's that kind of situation where the means set say so much about what you're doing in fact the means by which you try to attain this is the entirety of what you're doing i would go so far as to say yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I guess the question I would ask as a follow-up is, I mean, this is what I struggle with when it comes to this topic is when you put it like, obviously good guys don't beat bad guys with the same tools just for better purposes because, or that evil is not defeated when we use what about it that we call evil to fight it. Right. Mm. It's like what makes war, evil or terrorism evil well it's that they use violence to hurt innocent people well let's go do the same in kind like when you put it as simple as that you're like well that doesn't make any sense there's obviously at that play there right um so why do you think it is so hard for us i don't know if you want to just say as americans but i actually think just as human beings to identify this as a myth and then to step outside of it even though it's so obvious what in us do you think drives us to basically buy into it hook, line, and sinker, even though when you say it out loud, it's just clearly absurd. I mean, I, I it's a it's a great question. It's it's hard to answer, but you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, because I think it's multifaceted probably. The answer oh, yeah. is very no, you complex. Can't answer five minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the the first thing that comes to my mind though, and certainly a, a key part of it, is that we there's something alluring about black and white morality when it yeah. comes down to it there black and white morality presents us a a world in which things make logical sense it's you know if doing this bad thing makes me a bad person makes me deserving to die then maybe the world isn't isn't right maybe there's things that need to be done but there's an attainable, easy way by which things are set correctly. Mm. I need, if, if all wrong gets returned, then 
in a like like a math equation if there's just a negative equal to all of the all that's happened uh, if it's just negated in response then everything works out to balance and things are fine and i just think i, I think that there's a part like in a sense it just goes back to logic and it's why obviously uh i'm very pro and this may not be obvious i am very pro science and i i uh i i i would never argue against uh you know the the for lack of a better word the forces of science even though that doesn't really mean anything but you know what i mean i I would never argue against scientific advancement and progress i do think that that's what the fascinating thing and the reason why spirituality has an allure to me is because there are things that logic doesn't answer very well and i think this is one of them i think that logic would dictate in very clear terms well yeah eye for an eye it's it's reciprocal it it adds up to zero it makes the world make sense but we see so clearly where you know if i hit you and you hit me back i'm going to want to hit you again i'm going to come back and logically i shouldn't but i will and that's how the cycle begins because then i hit you and now you can't even though you know it's just going to create more violence you're not going to stop you're going to go for it and it's not logical but it's how it's what it's what happens and so i think that that's almost like where spirituality and this third way thinking takes over because we have to behave illogically in a sense it doesn't make sense to take that middle road of i'm not going to stand by and participate in this but i'm also not going to use these same forces against against this evil if that makes sense i don't know it does no there's a popular meme that i don't even know if it's if it's true or not um so i'm spreading fake news but yeah it, it at least makes an interesting point which is you know it's some uh historian or anthropologist i can't remember which and someone asked them what the um what the beginning of human civilization is, right? And people expect them to say tools or uh, any number of answers. And they say it's the first rocket or um, fossil record of a broken bone that was reset and healed. And the argument is that it was the first time in human species or whatever you want to say, there's this moment in our human race where we decided it was better for a human being to risk getting eaten by a lion when they stop moving, they stay still and they help the wounded person Yeah, basically come back from something that would have led to their death if they had just abandoned them. Um, and that this is the, this is the sign of true civilization, or this is the sign of that turning point for our humanity. Right. Yeah. And it's no different than forgiveness and response to violence or woundedness, grace and response to wrong. I mean, there's this moment in which like you're saying, to raise, rise above our human instincts um, is an incredibly foolish thing to do on some levels. And yet it's the moment in which we can actually become a, a species that does great things. It's like yeah. a turning point. It's a turning point for whether human beings will be more than just our base instinct is yeah. this moment of forgiveness, of non-retaliation, of reconciliation over punitive justice. And so, yeah, but I think for me, the thing that keeps us so blind to the truth of that is just fear. 
It's fear and selfishness. And I fall into this. Every time I want to do right, there's a tape in my head that says, but what if they hit you again? Right? Yeah. And obviously I never answer that then with the, the truth, which is, well, then if I retaliate, I'm still lessening my humanity. I'm still continuing the cycle of woundedness that I hate. I never answer that way. I answer, you're right. I shouldn't let them hit me again, right? I should escalate <laughs> yeah. and devastate so that they can't hit me again. You say, oh man, that's a great point. Right? Yeah. Let's go for it. Yeah. Let's get the get the flamethrower out, right? Yeah. It's uh, quote, once upon a time in Hollywood. But but yeah, it, it's it's I'm blind to it because I'm either selfish in the sense that I'm only thinking about myself, not what I'm perpetuating onto others or the cycles of our world or the systems of our world. Or it's just fear. I just don't want to suffer. And this is a delusion that tells me that I won't have to suffer anymore if I impose enough suffering on the person who's causing me suffering, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's so crazy when I say that out loud, but it's so human. So, Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for the conversation. Um, we, we may or may not be taking the movie a little seriously, but I think that's probably nah. what we do, right? No, no yeah. problems with that. No, it's, um, I think we're good. Okay, we, we're no problems here. Uh, Is there a greater guys, movie about the human condition than John Wick? Honestly, I think it's it probably goes The Godfather, uh, There Will Kane. Be Blood, Citizen Kane, John Wick. Yeah. I'm comfortable I'm, I'm, with that list if you are. The Bible should probably be in there. And then John, <laughs> uh, maybe before or after John Wick. Uh, yeah, yeah. Somewhere around. They're about the same. They're about the same. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. We do have one more uh, question for each other. But before we get to that, uh, next time, Mike, what movie are we going to be watching? We are going to be talking about one of my favorites, a Jim Carrey classic, actually, uh, The Truman Show. So I'm really excited yeah. about that. One of one of my favorites too. I, I in a way I may be overhyping it. I haven't rewatched it in a while, but I if I remember right, this is one of my favorite movies ever. So uh, we encourage you guys listen if you if you're listening along, watch that because of course we will talk about spoilers and everything. Uh, now we're into final questions, but before that, I have an important update. My sister texted me back. Uh, is it okay to feed a puppy milk and cereal? She said it's not the best but a little bit won't hurt. So John Wick <laughs> redeemed. He's a good pet owner. Uh, a little say, bit is fine. I'm going to say he's neutral. I'm not going to give okay, him. Okay. I'll, I'll give you neutral. I'll give you neutral. He's, he's an okay pet owner. Can you ask her if but, it's okay to kill yourself and let your dog starve to death in your house? I, I don't think, I don't think her expertise as a veterinarian is necessary for that question. I think we're probably set. Okay. Um, Okay, I'm going to go first. Well, no, you should go first. What's your final question for me? Okay, yeah. Um, so despite all that nonsense about third-way thinking, yeah, simple question. You have been a pet owner. You owned a cat. Um, yeah. And I guess the question is, is if the Russian mob and or, and or Theon Greyjoy broke into your apartment and right. uh, beat your cat to death with a lead pipe, yeah. would you dismantle the Russian mob with as much violence and by any means necessary? I'm, I'm going to say this. There's a non-zero chance that I would try. There is a 0% chance that I would succeed. 
you the new story would not be vigilante destroys mus- russian mob the new story would be uh young or not young but 25 year old uh guy gets himself killed by running into a a mob building or something i actually like that. think the new story might be like 25 year old guy gets arrested for asking police where to find the russian mob. <laughs> that, <laughs> you know what that might also that that's even more likely to be honest uh but luckily that scenario hasn't come up yet but you know what if it ever does i'm going to keep you appraised of, of my okay. response i'll see it on a future episode um my question for you mike so in an alternate universe john wick is exactly the same film except there is no puppy to set off his killing spree what is another gift from his dead wife that would have instigated the events of the film <laughs> a parakeet I know. I Great. That's that's it. Obviously, you know what? I'm going to say this other universe, John Wick, probably not as successful. No, I don't think it's very interesting. I think a lot of people would applaud the decision. Um, yeah. Of killing be more artsy. Yeah. Be a, be a more artistic take on the movie. That is a really hard question because of what we already talked about. This is the perfect choice to make up for the mayhem of this film. Like, I don't even think the Russian mob killing his wife would have let me watch this film <laughs> in the right tone or the right anything, right? There's really no answer. Nothing yeah. makes it as successful as a puppy. Like, uh, I don't know. You're right. I think I think the answer is like an Ewok. If he had a, a pet Ewok, would that do it? That e. would, if he was friends with E.T.? That would be significantly more disturbing. I, I just want to <laughs> chime in. I'm upset that you've put the mental imagery into my head of an Ewok and or ET being brutally murdered by the Russian mob. But yes, that would work. Yes. I, I would be on board with the movie. Yeah. ET is the answer. Like I would be on board with a movie where, uh, his friend ET gets murdered and he goes on a killing spree in a sense. Now that we've said it, that sounds like a better movie. I would, I would watch that. that movie. I would see that movie in a heartbeat. Well, Mike, uh, thank you for joining me as always. Thank you all for listening. Uh, This has been This Film Could Be Your Life.